Welcome to Scene Change, a podcast by the National Federation of the Blind's Performing Arts Division. All about equality, opportunity, accessibility, and the arts. Here, you'll learn adaptive techniques from performers in the know. We are changing what it means to be blind, one stage at a time. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Scene Change. I'm your host, Lizzie Muhammad Park, and you've just heard Some Songs Are For Crying by Jessica Victoria. In this episode, I get the chance to interview someone who I haven't seen in almost 10 years. She's an amazing combination of power and gentleness, classical, Celtic, operatic, and many other genres of music. She's a professor who's a lifelong learner. And her music is both energizing and soothing. You may know her as Jessica Patija, but we're talking about her in a musical sense. So we will refer to her as Jessica Victoria. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you. It's so great to be here. And it's, I'm really looking forward to talking with you. And um, so thanks again for having me today. Of course, of course. So... To kick things off, for anyone who um, is listening to our show who is not a Federationist or even just new to the Federation, would you tell us a little bit about your background as far as blindness goes, um, your philosophy, and then um, after that we'll get into your background about music and how it relates to music. Sure. Well, I was born blind. I'm originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico. So always once a New Mexico native, always a New Mexico native. And I was really fortunate because I was taught Braille and cane travel from a really young age. Fred Schroeder, really, and, and all the wonderful teachers in Albuquerque were just such inspirations to me ever since I was really, really little. So I just kind of thought a healthy blindness philosophy was just what everybody had. Like, of course, blindness is just part of who you are, like having black hair or being from New Mexico. And I always I grew up just thinking about it as another characteristic of mine. And it wasn't until later when I went out into the world beyond my my smaller circle that I realized, oh, this is different. A lot of people don't think about blindness in this way. And it was, to me, I, I was just just blown away by, wow, this is, some people don't think it's just another characteristic. Um, and so I'm a bit stubborn as, or maybe some people would say strong-willed. <laughs> and so I just had this, this idea that, you know what, I'm going to um, just live this philosophy, even though maybe some other people might not be there yet in the music world as well. Um, and so I just continued to grow in my understanding of blindness philosophy, um, a healthy philosophy of blindness. Uh, I remember going to a banquet one time where Dr. Maurer was speaking and my mom and I just looked at each other going, yes, yes, this, that's exactly right. Like we were so excited that we had so many people who um, were living this this philosophy of, of normalcy and that blindness is just another characteristic. And so um, I did some um, some work. Uh, well, first, I won a scholarship in 2002, UU2 class. 
Um, and then I was a Tenbrook Fellow in 2007 and uh, did some work at the National Center as an intern um, before I, I did my doctorate. And um, now in the world, I'm doing what I can to mentor other blind um, creatives, uh, other blind people in different fields, and just living this philosophy in in my everyday life. Exactly. And that's something that I'm sure has um, your your outlook on blindness, I'm sure has helped you throughout your music career because you are doing things. I mean, I will tell you the the amount of questions that I got from people um, uh, for me to ask you related to your professional uh, career as a professor and as a singer um, and songwriter, so on and so forth. Um, it's, it's, there were a lot of questions. So how has this blindness philosophy impacted your music career? Could you just share with us a bit about your music journey? Uh, when did sure, you first know yeah. that you wanted to be a musician? You know, it's so when I was little, I wanted to be a lot of things as many people probably do. I went through my phase of wanting to be a judge, um, all sorts of different things. And Something remained constant, though, and that was that I loved to sing and I loved to write songs. Ever since I was really little, I would just make up things and and sing. Uh, but, you know, when I was in high school, I kind of started to shy away from that a little bit because um, it was kind of at the time some some um, people that I knew were like, oh, you know, that's kind of a blindness field or like, you know, there's this stereotypical image of like the blind musician and so I was like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I want to do something that is, um, you know, something that maybe people don't think of when they think of a blind person. Um, but then I went to a music institute. In I was a junior in high school. Went to this amazing institute for blind musicians in Connecticut, um, and it was great because I got to meet others who were. They didn't care about whether they should or shouldn't be doing this field or in this field because they were blind. They were doing it because they had real passion and real gifts for it. And it was there that I started learning Braille music because before that I had had limited exposure to it and I didn't realize how important it was going to be. And so I started learning Braille, Braille music. I came back home and I just knew that no matter what the sort of stereotype was about being a musician, I wanted to do it because it was deeply ingrained, this this passion in me. It wasn't anything sort of that was limited by me being blind or anything like that. And ironically, though, <laughs> once I got into the music field, I realized that how much of it was actually um, sort of more visual and and there there were still walls to be <laughs> to be encountered as a blind musician. One of which um, is actually the the music, right? So learning how to read braille music, not just relying on on memorizing things. Um, still realizing how important having a good ear is, right? But really um, getting to understand the braille notation, and then also the print notation. Um, because as I got more and more into music and, and worked with a lot of Sighted musicians as well, I had to be able to relate to what they were seeing. Um, and that turned out to be really important as I taught, began to teach music theory later on to sighted um, students. And um, another area that I hadn't thought about as being a challenge um, turned out to be the area of stage movement and acting. And it was, to me, I always thought, oh yeah, of course, that's going to be, you know, something that I do. And I didn't really give it a second thought until um, cited directors and people in the field were like, oh, well, how are you going to do that? Like, I'm afraid you're going to fall off the stage as a blind person. And I was like, what? <laughs> I never even <laughs> thought about that. Um, <laughs> so I had to start thinking about, okay, well, it's not just about, you know, convincing me because I, I know I can do this. It's about showing um, my peers. It's about showing um, the gatekeepers that I can do this without them having to worry and so um, I, I studied dance. I studied movement. Um, I worked with coaches um, and was able to cross their, that barrier as well. And so, um, you know, being able to act and, and sing and know the music was really important. And, um, you know, also to be able to, to confront with gentleness and with, um, with directness, though, um, sometimes people stereotypes about what they thought a blind musician should be like and what I actually was like, right? So 
um, being able to actually show them, no, this is this is something that um, I can do, for example, as far as stage movement, as far as being completely able to um, to act. Right. Um, and and no, I don't have this encyclopedic memory that, you know, you can't just play something for me once and then I will remember it forever. I mean, great. If some people can do that, that's awesome. That's their talent. Um, but me, no, I'm sorry. I need Braille music. <laughs> I need to be able to see the music <laughs> in front of me. Um, so that's just a few things that uh, that emerged as I went down this path that at first I thought, oh, you know, I want to avoid it um, because it's quote unquote a blindness path. But no, it actually it turned out to be um, I decided to do it because I was passionate about it and I loved it. And um, it was not obstacle free. <laughs> <laughs> not obstacle free, but you're definitely uh, someone who's it sounds like you were a natural at it from, you know, the very beginning and just the way that you were able to pick up things like uh, Braille music. So you learned Braille music at this uh, experience that you had. And then did you sort of have to go home and and perfect it yourself? Or war was there a teacher who was able to uh, help you kind of hone in on those skills? What did you do? Yeah, for so it was, it was, the, I got the, the, the inspiration and the introduction and the, the, the framework, right, for the skills at the Institute, which um, is was in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, it was started by an amazing, I, I think of him as my musical father, David Goldstein, who's just remarkable. And he had this Institute for Blind Musicians. Um, and I went home and there was a lot of hard work ahead of me. So I worked on it pretty much on my own. They had given us um, resources, the Braille, a Braille Music Dictionary, um, a handbook. And then um, I went back again the second year they had, because uh, it was every year. So I went back and I got to work more on it. But a lot of what I was learning was on the ground because when I was learning Braille music, that was a little bit before I applied and started my undergrad um, theory studies. And believe me, there were plenty of nights where I would end up in tears throwing the theory book at the wall. I It was hard because not only was I learning the concepts that my peers were learning, but I was also trying to learn Braille music at the same time. And it was definitely um, a, an experience I would not want to repeat. But at the same time, I can totally empathize with my students when they're, when they're having a hard time. Wow. So, okay. Because you've mentioned theory, and I know that this is a question that a lot of people have. Um, could you please tell the audience some of your alternative techniques for learning music theory, but also now as a teacher, some of your alternative techniques for teaching music theory when it comes to things like students writing on the board and um, things of that nature? Yeah, so... When I was learning theory, one of the biggest things I had to figure out how to do was dictation. So usually in a, a theory class, you have the, the written portion where you learn how to analyze and you learn how to write music. And then you have the other uh, oral skills or ear, ear training portion where you have to be able to listen to something and then write it out in music. And um, so I would use my, I had a Braille sense, which, or maybe I think it was a Braille note at the time. And so I would listen first though, like as I heard the, the, the excerpt for the first time, I would just write a shorthand for the rhythms that I would hear. And for me, it just happened to be numbers and little syllables like the and sign. So if I was gonna like write one and a two, I would actually just write out in Nemeth one, and then and uh, two. So I would write those rhythms first so that I would have a framework. And then I would go back and fill in the Braille music as I was um, as I was hearing it. And then I would <laughs> at that point, um, I I was just starting to use Lime, which was is a, a program for Braille music transcription. So I would go back and transcribe the excerpt in Lime or um, even before that, I would actually just read the music notes aloud into a recording for my professor and, and hand him uh, a recording with me reading like, you know, F4 quarter note, G5 half or whatever. Um, and so that was one way that I started to figure out how to adapt things. For my exams, I would write everything out um, on, I would write it out in Lime. And um, when I was first learning composition, I had a, a Perkins Braille writer, which was a lifesaver because 
on a Perkins, you can look at the different lines of music at once. So you can see how they line up. Whereas on a Braille display, you have to scroll right line by line. Um, I think now they're coming out with some multi-line displays, which I would love to get my hands on one of those. But there's nothing like there was nothing like a Perkins um, to be able to let you see quote, the, the score. So when I was composing, I would write my lines and then I would make sure that everything was spaced correctly so you could see how each note corresponded to each other note in the different voices. So a Braille, Braille writer was very important to me, as was Lime and Goodfeel, which is a Braille music transcription program. And um, also just little techniques here and there to learn music theory. When I started to teach it, one of my biggest things that I had to figure out was how do I um, how do I understand what my sighted students are writing? Because there are certain things that we don't have in Braille music, but that are very important in print music when you learn print music. For example, um, something called beaming, where you have to uh, sort of put a, a line connecting the note stems. And by the way, in, in print music, some notes have stems, depending on what their rhythm is. And the way that the stems are connected and which way they're pointing um, makes it easier or harder to read the print music. So first I had to understand beaming, and then I had to be able to um, figure it out so I could teach it. And so what I did was I, I um, there's this, I can't remember who makes it, but it's a kit of, mag it's a magnets actually, and they're all print music symbols. And then I augmented it because it only had basics. So um, I had somebody help me um, cut out even more symbols. So that if I needed to show my students something, I would be I would show them on the the magnetic board so that they could see, OK, this is what the beaming is supposed to look like. Um, this is where the stems are supposed to face. This is how ties work, et cetera. And then um, as far as students writing things on the board, what I would do instead was I had them use a program called MuseScore, which um, is great. It's free. And it's really nice because you can convert it, you can, you can export files in Music XML. And Music XML is very easy for Goodfeel to convert. So that's how I would, I would have them turn in their assignments. Um, and plus, it was good for them because they, need, they needed to learn how to um, notate music electronically anyway, because that's what everybody's doing these days. So they would use MuseScore to write out their assignments. And then sometimes I would actually have them do it in class, right? So it wasn't just homework. Sometimes I would um, put them into groups and they would uh, come up with a MuseScore um, answer and then I would run it quickly through that transcription process. And um, as I was reading it, I would have them write it up on the board for their peers to read and critique as well. Um, so <laughs> those are just some, some examples of different techniques that I found very helpful while I was teaching and learning music theory. Very helpful. And thank you for outlining your uh, personal system that you sort of, sort of created, you know, that, uh, you know, for yourself, mm -hmm. because I remember having to do that for different classes and those sorts of things are very useful to others who, you know, are in the middle of going yeah. through something. And, and sometimes it's just useful to know, okay, I'm just going to have to forge a new path here. So mm -hmm. thank you for sharing. Um, Okay, while we're on the topic of visuals, I do want to hear more about your dance classes. Um, <laughs> everyone who's listened to the podcast knows that I love dance. Oh, so, um, so I'm curious to know, what styles of dance have you learned and how have they uh, helped your stage present and comfort? Mm -hmm. And when I say yeah. comfort, I mean like O&M oh, like yeah, skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so um, I have a ballet background, um, which has been super helpful um, just for 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 grace and poise and, and things like that. And also um, I teach when I, when I teach voice uh, vocal technique, there are some concepts that I can um, take from ballet and use in, in the classroom as well. So um, that was my earliest foundation in dance was ballet. And then um, I did take uh, ballroom dance as well because um, I love ballroom, first of all, and also in some um, kinds of stage stage shows like opera and things like that. Um, you will need to, to, to know some of the steps, um, like a waltz or a minuet or things that um, might be useful to have in a scene, for example. Um, plus, it was, it was really great because it um, helped me with comfort 
and being able to relate to another person, right? And to um, that sort of movement in in a partner kind of setting. Um, I also I had I have some salsa background as well, and um, I I guess that that falls into ballroom dance. Um, one of my favorite kinds of of movement that I got to do was um, stage combat. And um, that was really cool because we got to use different kinds of weapons on stage and we got to learn um, how, you know, how to move. Uh, we did quarter staves, we did broadswords, we did epee. And again, it's great to have that for, um, for shows, but I just love it anyway because it, it, make, it helps you relate to your body in a different way. Um, so I was able to, to take that um, set of, of movements, uh, that set of movement skills to, to some staging in, um, in my opera career, et cetera. Um, but as far as relating as, and, uh, to comfort on stage, I think just the, the conglomeration, if you will, of being comfortable with moving in different ways and um, growing spatial awareness um, really helped with that. Usually what I'll do if I'm if I'm doing a show is for maybe the first couple blocking rehearsals, I'll have a folding cane with me on stage just so that I can understand what the layout of things is. And then once I understand that, then I don't use a, a cane on stage um, for a, a choreographed show. Um, now for my recitals and things like that, I do use a cane on stage and I'm able to kind of integrate it into the the movement on and off stage, et cetera. Um, it just really depends on what the what the show demands. Um, and also how long I'm going to be in a space. Because sometimes if you're touring, if you're touring, you don't get the luxury of seeing the space that much beforehand. Whereas if you're doing a show in a place that, you know, where you have a couple of rehearsals, then you will get a chance to see it. And it's easier to to go through the different stages of familiarizing yourself with it. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like you have a wide background to, to pull from. Um, and then also, you know, just combining that with the blindness techniques that you learned, um, probably, I'm assuming, uh, you know, the ones that you learned as a child, mm -hmm. and sort of just combining the two of those to create comfort on stage, which is really good to know, especially um, for others who are uh, maybe musicians but you know because we always get questions about mm -hmm. stage presence and it yeah. sounds like you know doing something like dance class and you know things like that are the things that could really help acting classes could really help um you know people who who are thinking of well you know i'm just doing something that's audio based no mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. it's a little bit of everything it's audio it it's is. visual <laughs> it is and you know what i absolutely i remember in middle school i was in swing choir and i absolutely hated choreography like I dreaded the nights when the choreographer would come and work with us because I always felt so out of place and I mm. hated having to be singled out like for somebody to show me like what the, you know, what the hand gestures were, what the steps were. But right. in, in hindsight, I'm really happy that I was able to, to do that even from, from middle school because it kind of showed me what other people were doing. Like what, what, it, what does it mean when they're saying jazz hands or when they're doing these different movements? Um, and so even though it was not fun at the time, I was, I'm really happy that I started early um, to learn about those kinds of movements. It's true. It's really, really true how helpful those times can be. It's, I guess, a sweet and sour, I guess is yeah. how, <laughs> how I can put it. Um, so, okay, what can you tell us about shooting you, uh, your, your videos? You have various videos and, and things like that on YouTube. What is that like um, coming from the perspective of a, a blind musician? Oh my goodness. We live in such a visual world today and it's, it's just getting more and more so, right? I mean, to be a musician and to have an online presence, you've got to have the brand and it's, it is a business. And a, a big part of that is the visual part of your brand, the, your logo, your, um, your fonts, your colors on your pages. Like, you know, but when I went, when I started this whole thing, I was like, man, like, Sighted people are, are needy. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Like they have to have like the, the specific font and the specific, um, you know, way that you're supposed to um, be, you know, all these little things that are visual. But um, 
it's a new world. And, and it, it's kind of cool because everything that you can uh, delve into as far as your visual presence can actually help build your, um, your own story, your own, your own brand. And that extends to, uh, to video and um, things like Instagram reels and, um, you know, little behind the scenes videos. And I, when I first started thinking about video, I was like, okay, well, how am I going to do this as a blind person? What, what are my, what kinds of techniques am I, am I going to use? And it was during the pandemic when it really became very important. And so I set up my music room here um, with the help of um, friends and family um, who had some video background. Um, and so I have a, a, like a backing screen thing that I have. And then um, my my father-in-law actually put down tape on the floor for my tripod um, so that it would be exactly where it needed to be if I was doing one of these behind the scenes videos. And usually what I would do then before, um, before I would shoot the video or before I would do a live stream um, is I would go on um, FaceTime or on um, Facebook Live um, with one other person just to make sure that all the angles were exactly what I needed them to be. Um, and that was kind of a crazy thing to learn how to set up too, because I didn't want to go on Facebook live with everybody, right? Because it wasn't, it wasn't showtime yet. So I had to figure out a different way, um, to be on Facebook to still get the, the live, um, visual to somebody else, but without bringing everybody else in who was going to be watching it. Uh, so that's just one example of a challenge that I, I had to think about. Um, then I thought, you know what, I'm going to hire, um, a video person or a, a content creator. And so I had to think about like, how am I going to evaluate this person's work? And how am I going to, to know that they're going to be um, able to communicate my brand? And so one of the things that I found to be extremely important um, was specificity, being as specific as, as I can, um, creating kind of a, a branding kit so that they could see what what I'm all about. Like, um, I surveyed a lot of, uh, listeners of mine and, um, they told me, you know, okay, these are some people that you sound like. And then I researched their brands a little bit. And, um, so, you know, as much information as you can give somebody who's working with you on visuals, the better. Um, and then <laughs> a lot of it is by committee, right? So like sometimes you might have a video or a shot or something, um, maybe a headshot, and you're not quite sure if it's giving the effect that you want. And so sometimes the best way is um, by asking many, many people. And the majority opinion will start to surface. Um, so it, maybe they'll be telling you some different things. But if you hear something more than once, and if you hear it a lot, then there's going to be some truth in that thing. Um, and so I've found having um, a committee, right, a, a a group of people that I run things by visual things has been very helpful for me. Wow. Okay. That is very, very useful for, um, for our audience to know. Um, and I like the idea too, of having, um, a committee, you know, we always talk about, um, you're just seeking wise counsel, you know, mm -hmm. people, exactly, you know, just having that, that group who you can go to and, and chat with about these different things is very useful. So I love that idea. Um, I would like to get into uh, a bit more. So we're going to take a, a struggle turn, but I know that this is going to go positive. So I know I can ask this question. So <laughs> <laughs> you shared, you shared a bit about, um, your self-advocacy and uh, sometimes, you know, need for directness. And I wonder if you face any barriers uh, breaking into the traditional field of academia. Um, so, you know, as a professor, a music professor who happens to be blind, I just wonder what barriers have you faced? Um, was it difficult breaking into the field? And, you know, what did you come up against and how did you... Um, or what, what concerns did you come up against and, and how did you uh, combat those? So, you know, it's, it's interesting. The biggest struggles I've had or the biggest barriers I've encountered have actually been in the opera world. Um, wow. Which is very ironic because they're so about like, you know, equal opportunity and uh, that we're all about inclusion. It, it's not, no, <laughs> it's kind of funny. 
that's not always true. So that's really where I've encountered the most resistance. But um, in terms of academia, um, you know, I, not not so much from um, from my peers, from uh, from those above me, from administrators. Um, I remember when I was uh, being considered for this position, um, I got a call and the, one of the, the people who was uh, hiring just he was like, I just want to make sure you can teach music theory, correct? This is because we really need it. This is something that you can really do. I'm like, yes, absolutely. And so that was kind of like, he was like, okay, I just really need to know that. Um, and that was it. Like they, they kind of, they took me at face value and, um, and that was that. Um, I, you know, <laughs> um, I've had yeah, not as many struggles at all with students. Um, I think sometimes they were a little bit, they didn't know how I was going to do something, for example. Um, and, but there wasn't really any, ever any sort of sense of like, oh, um, she can't do this or she doesn't know what she's doing. Um, you know, I've always had the kind of interesting in the evaluations that we have to do. Um, one of the questions is always like, how much confidence do you have in your professor and in their, their expertise? And that was always one of my highest scores, which I I was really surprised about actually, just because I thought that maybe there would be more resistance um, in terms of like, oh, how can a blind person do this? Um, so I think, <laughs> I think for me, like one of the biggest things I had to contend with uh, at first was my own kind of self doubt in a way, because I was like, well, how am I going to like, how am I going to convince them? Like, how am I going to, sh you know, show them that I can do this? And, you know, I had to be able, sometimes the biggest struggles we have are internal ones, right? Being able to really, really confront ourselves and some of the things that we tend to tell ourselves. Um, I think many musicians, many musicians struggle with imposter syndrome and this idea that like, oh, they're going to discover who I really am. They're going to discover that I've been pretending this whole time, right? But so that was one of the biggest things I had to do was just get out of my own way and be like, okay, just take it. A step at a time you you know there's something that you might not know how to do now okay so figure it out or ask um other people and take that next step so uh, yeah i would say that would that was my biggest um my biggest struggle i think was that that self um self struggle you're exactly right and that's something that i'm actually working through right now um when i you know sometimes we'll have a situation and i'll say oh i bet they think that i couldn't do it and then it turns out that person wasn't thinking anything like that at all, you know? Yeah. So then I asked myself, well, why did I think that they thought that I couldn't do it? And I'm like, oh my goodness, I think I thought I couldn't do it. You yeah, know what I yeah. mean? So, <laughs> so sometimes I have to like check myself and, and it's, it's really good. I think that, um, especially as children, uh, we end up internalizing a lot of what the world has said to us, even yes. if technology has changed or mm -hmm. the attitudes and thoughts have changed so that people aren't really thinking that anymore or you know people who were thinking that are not in the positions of mm -hmm. you know what I mean not yeah. in the same position anymore so I think that a lot of that you know can stem from those days but you know it's it's good to know that um the the world of academia had had every ounce of faith in you um I'm not surprised at all that your students had faith in you because I think so often like I mean I literally just graduated from from grad school and I remember like there was never a time that I would think of like, just, I'm just thinking of myself walking into a classroom. I mm -hmm. wouldn't have cared about what ability, disability or otherwise mm -hmm. my professor mm -hmm. had. Yeah. I, yeah. I presume that if they got the job, they're very well qualified. They're you yeah. know what I mean? So <laughs> they're, they're there. <laughs> it's true. So it's so true. Um, wow. Okay. So let's jump into the opera section uh, since, since you brought it up. Um, everyone wants to know, how do you uh, direct an opera? Um, okay, yeah. Yes. They, how do you block? I've got questions. Words that I don't even understand. Blocking and, mm -hmm. and running things. And yeah, so people who are into opera want to know this mm -hmm. stuff. Um, yeah. And I don't know all the terminology, so do let us know. Oh, nice. Okay, so yeah. So when I, when I um, started this academic position, um, I, you know, I wanted to do some opera scenes with my students, some opera um, things with them. And so I was like, okay, well, how am I going to do this? What's going to happen? Um, and the first and foremost thing that I always start with is the story. And how can we tell the story the very best that we can? And 
So I do a ton of research, first of all. Um, and so if I'm doing um, a, a set of scenes, for example, from a, from a show, I'll go back and look at the read the original novel, um, maybe from where it comes. Um, and I'll read the a little bit more about the historical context and what was going on at the time, maybe to inspire the the writing of the show. Um, by reading a novel about it, then you get to have some ideas about what the characters would have been doing actually in the different scenes. What would have been natural? What kinds of movements they would have been, um, you know, going to that that would have been contributing to the story that they're telling. And so that's always my my starting point is as much research as I can do. And then the second one is I work a lot on personal characterization, personal character development with each of my singers so that they're taking a very active role in their own character and story that um, is founded not on just kind of, okay, now you're going to walk three steps and then you're going to raise your hand and then you're going to not sort of outer choreography, but movements and gestures that come from that are informed by uh, the inner psychology of their characters. And so I work very collaboratively with my artists because um, if they have this process that I teach them about creating uh, what's called a subtext and um, creating sense memories from that subtext, then they're going to come super prepared to our um, to our strategy sessions. And so I want to hear from them about how they envision a scene um, before I go into the specifics of, of blocking and um, costumes and things like that. Um, and so again, um, I have a very specific idea in mind of what I want to convey with a particular staging of something. Um, but I'm really interested in collaborating with the people who are going to be the singers, the people who are going to be um, helping out with the the tech, etc. cetera. Um, and so again, I, I do, I approach it um, with, with a committee in mind. So I, I might have a great idea for something. At least I think it's great. And I explain it. And I was like, okay, well, what do you think? Should we do this, this, and this? Um, and sometimes they're like, yeah, that's great. And sometimes they might be like, oh, well, you know what? We're not going to be able to see that particular um, motion as much. So, you know, why don't we do this instead? Um, and so as, as I start to um, conceptualize everything, I, I go from the perspective of like, here's my big idea. This is what I want to achieve. Now, how are this? What are the small steps that we can do to get there? Um, and how can I collaborate with people who are you know, on the ground and who are who are the characters in this particular scene? Um, then as, in terms of organization, it's really no different than organizing any other kind of big project, right? You have to coordinate rehearsal schedules and you have to make sure that um, everybody ha- is off book by a certain amount of time um, before the show. And then you have to make sure that um, all the tech is ready and that one thing that I have found extremely valuable is having um, a really competent stage director, somebody who is in charge of making sure everybody's props are where they need to be, when they need to be there, and somebody who can make sure and give notes to the musicians, to the actors um, after rehearsals and things like that. Somebody who has a really good eye for detail as well, um, so that maybe she'll catch something or, or he'll catch something that I might not have catched, just uh, caught it. <laughs> Hot. There's my grammar today. Um, and so it, that's been really, really helpful is having a very trustworthy, competent stage director. Um, and yeah, we've done some really fun scenes and um, they've been they've been well received. So I never thought I never thought I would go into the world of actually directing. <laughs> that was just never on my horizon um, until I had to do it. So. Wow. See, that's the really cool thing, though. It's like life just takes us. Uh, in these different paths that we didn't see coming, did you see yeah. yourself? Did you see yourself using uh, Celtic music and and you know and all these different yeah, genres together? Um, <laughs> so you know what? It, that's really my yeah. That's that's like my my central love, right? So like, there's just so many so many ways, right, that we can branch out into music. But um, it my my multi genre songwriting is really at the. I guess that's my. That's my wellspring, right? That's where, mm-hmm. that's kind of, if I were to say that's my heart, um, yeah. that's where it would be. And I really started to tap into that as I um, 
really started learning the Celtic harp because when I was little, um, I would use the piano ever since I was really, really young. But and I like the piano. I love it. I teach it. I, I use it when I teach theory and it's a great tool. But I never felt like a connection with it in the same way that I feel when I'm playing the harp and I'm um, and I'm writing. Um, because sometimes the instrument itself can lead to some some new idea, some new melody or some new path for writing. And um, so being able to to have the harp as my instrument for accompanying has really opened my opened my horizons and enlarged this this whole creative path for me. And um, so being able to find this unique intersection of genres, be it, uh, you know, Scottish Gaelic or, um, uh, you know, influences from from heavy metal or um, maybe from uh, classical piano music, right? And taking them and blending them all together to tell a story has been uh, a joy. And um, it's been a, a voyage of discovery for me. And uh, being a storyteller, first and foremost, I think music definitely always serves the story. It's just another way for me to expand that and um, bring people into a place of magic and wonder and beauty. Wow, that it does. How did you pick up the Celtic harp? Like that's, you know what I mean? Like, were you in what? I don't know, Ireland? I don't even know if that, <laughs> I will leave the question as yeah, I first yeah. said it. How did you, yeah. how did you pick it up? I, yeah, I mean, cause it doesn't, it's like, well, well, how did this girl from like Albuquerque, New Mexico, <laughs> like decide that, you know? Um, and it was just because I, I kind of thought back, I was at a place in my life where I was really questioning, like, what is it that I am giving as a musician? Like everybody has a special gift, a special thing, right? That, that, that That's just their own. Um, and there are plenty of amazing singers out there. There are plenty of amazing um, composers. There are plenty of amazing theory and other kinds of professors out there. Like, what is it that I can do specifically? And I, it came to the surface, this idea of um, there's, I have something to say as, as an artist and um, only I can say it. Just like, um, you know, every, every single person has this beautiful, unreplaceable, unrepeatable voice. And um, finding the harp was part of that because I thought back and I realized that the instrument that I'd loved very much ever, ever since I was very small um, was the harp. And because it was so, it just had, it had a beauty about it. Um, and so that's how I decided that I was going to play, play it. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, this is what I want to play. This is the instrument that I think um, is going to give me the most flexibility in, in songwriting and performing. And so I think I'm going to do it. And so I started looking for harps and looking for teachers. And um, I found this amazing harp maker, Luthier, in um, Colorado. And he actually just retired, which is a bummer because he makes these phenomenal instruments. Um, and I was able to um, get my own Merlin harp, which is, um, it's not that big. It's about, it's about as tall as me and I'm not that tall for people who know. Um, and, and it's about 22 pounds. So it's definitely a lot smaller than a, like a big orchestral harp. Um, and so, yeah, we've taken him on the road. We've taken him all over the place, even on a Greyhound bus. Um, we've taken <laughs> the, the harp to different places to perform. Um, thanks to my husband, who's always there to help me with with it. Um, and so, yeah, I just found this deep connection in, in me and I wanted to um, to explore it. You know, it's almost like you've seen the questions ahead of time and you haven't. But my no. next question, I know, but my next question is going to be about going on tour. And then you mentioned <laughs> going on tour. So this is just going really, really well. Um <laughs> What can you tell us about going on the road? Um, you know, it's awesome. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure it's awesome. I'm sure it's exhausting. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like what? Just give us a, a, a snapshot of you know just a day in, in a life on oh. tour. <laughs> Man, okay, so um, so it is exhausting, um, but it's it's worth every moment of it. Um, so. Being on tour is really great because you get to meet new people. And I love, I love meeting people. That's one of my favorite things is, in, and as a musician, you get to 
see so many new places when you're touring. You get to meet new people. You get to uh, make these connections. Um, and I just love that part. Um, but then there's also the like, oh my goodness, you know, did I, uh, did I drink enough water on the plane? Because it dries you out, you know, like you, you have to make sure that you're still keeping up with your body, making sure that you're really healthy so that you don't get tired at the end of a tour. Um, and I remember I was on this tour in Italy and, um, you know, we would stop, we would stay a, a couple of nights and then we would go move on, um, to the next thing. And um, just being able to continue, because sometimes it's really tempting just to like eat whatever, like when you're out on the road and, but it, you have to keep the big picture in mind. Like, what is it? How can I keep supporting my body so that I'm going to be um, at my top, you know, performance? And um, how do I balance like being disciplined and making sure that I'm ready for that performance and not um, just like totally letting the adrenaline um, of afterward um, make me really tired for the next day. So it's a lot of balancing. It's a lot of making sure that you're taking care of yourself, you're listening to your body and um, giving yourself plenty of time um, if you can. Sometimes it's not even possible, but just to kind of reconnect with yourself and re, you know, have that pre-performance routine. That's something that um, has been really helpful to me is having um, kind of a, a routine that I do um, when I perform, sometimes it's hard because sometimes I'll have like two or three performances, two performances in a day. Um, and so you, it's like you, you climb this mountain, right. Of adrenaline for the first one. <laughs> and you're like, Oh wait, no. Okay. I have to do this all again in a few hours. Um, so you have to give yourself room to kind of reestablish, recover, um, find that equilibrium again. Um, and then climb the mountain again, and, and just think about, okay, this is a completely new thing, completely new performance, even though this is the second time I'm doing this today, um, because it's going to be for different people. It's going to be completely different as far as how it feels on stage. So yeah, I think the key to a really fun tour, a really good tour is balance and really listening to your body. Um, so that's, that's what I've found to be very helpful to me. Wow. And what effects does the audience have on you as oh, you perform? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Like, <laughs> I always tell people, I, I tell my students, um, I tell, you know, the music is, it, it's, it's a collaboration between the person who wrote it, the people who are making the music and the people who are listening. Um, the people who are listening are, in, are um, contributing so much because they are bringing their own life experiences. They're bringing their own needs, their own loves, their own joys to it, their own energy to it. And so this, um, the performance is born when we're, when I'm on stage, when the audience is open and, and pouring themselves out. Um, it's, there's such a synergy. And one of the reasons I do what I do, um, especially with orchestras is because there's nothing like being a soloist with an orchestra, having that, that synergy from your, your fellow collaborators on stage, and then feeling that coming from your audience as well. Um, it's just, beautiful because you're creating something so new and so vibrant and it will never be that way exactly again it's it's a once only experience that you're never going to get from a recording and you're never going to get from you know technology it's a one-time thing and then it's gone and and it, mm. that's why it's so beautiful wow oh, well i have one final question for you it's a little bit uh, obscure, but I'm, I'm interested to hear the answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> someone has requested that I ask you, what has been your most unique show or production? Ooh, that's a, that's a hard I one. I know, I know. Everything, <laughs> like, I mean, I could be really cliche and say like every single thing is, is you know, its own thing. But the ironic <laughs> thing is that wouldn't, I mean, even though it's cliche, it's completely true. Like the thing that I'm working on right now is, is really, really exciting, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, but who the most unique, um, that's a re I would say, I mean, it wasn't a show. It was more like a recording experience. Um, mm -hmm. when I did my album songs of the summer realm, we were recording it in the Scottish Highlands which um, is a beautiful part of Scotland. Um, there's lots of sheep, <laughs> lots of sheep, lots of mist, uh, lots of solitude. And uh, the musicians and I were all staying at the recording studio. And there was a song 
on the album that was being, it was really hard to record um, because there were so many moving parts. Um, the heart part that I had written, um, you know, it was, was not the easiest to record. Um, and we was just trying to find that exact, the, the exact um, way of, of expressing the ideas in this song. And I remember we finished it and the, um, the words, so it's based on the, it's based on the, the Holy Grail and um, Arthur and his knights going to find the Grail and um, their adventures becoming imprisoned along the way and, um, you know, having to having to fight this evil force. And um, so at the very end, the, the verse talks about the, the, the chains on the captives arms and legs dissolved in this fresh rain from heaven. And so I think the words are something like, and the rain, um, the song came pattering down like rain and melted the captive's fetters. I think something like that. And so as we finished that, that was the last part of the, of the song. And then I came out upstairs into the, uh, out into the, the upper level of the studio and it was raining and it was this fresh, beautiful <laughs> Highland rain that just smelled so, uh, so clean, so wonderful. And it was, it was almost like it was a blessing or a benediction yeah. on, uh, on the project. Like, yes, this rain is falling in, in accord with the song. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That was wow. a experience. I love that. How awesome. Weren't expecting that, huh? Yeah, um. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's all we have time for today. But thank you so very much for joining us. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you. So yeah, thank you. Come so back much anytime. For thank you so much. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And before we let you go today, um, could you just let us know, let our listeners know where they can follow you and where we all can follow you? Yeah, absolutely. So my website is jessicavictoria.com. And you can join my community of kindred spirits by going to go.jessicavictoria.com. You can also follow me on Facebook at JV Songstress and on Instagram at the same handle, JV Songstress. And to everyone out there listening, keep sending us your questions. We will have our podcast episode next month. I know we promised it for you this month, but... Um, we're just going to go ahead and do that next month, along with those lovely recordings that you all um, did for us about why and what you appreciate about the podcast. So we will do our anniversary episode just one month late. In the meantime, this has been another episode of Scene Change. I'm Caitlin McIntyre, president of the National Federation of the Blind Performing Arts Division. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Scene Change. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website at nfb-pad.org. There you'll find links to our social media, membership, and resources for blind performers. Thanks to everyone who makes this show happen. Scene Change is produced by Shane Lowe, Joe Schooneman, Precious Perez, Chris Nussbaum, Sayun Choi, and Aaron Jordan. With music by Ryan Strunk and Tom Page. Remember, you can be the performer you want. Blindness is not what holds you back. We'll see you next time. <laughs>